what it do? Consciousness pretending to be an ego fractured into a trauma experience, trying to remember who you are. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today is uh, one of my favorite podcasts because um, the guest today is a woman. Her name is Kelly Folkrod, and she is a psychotherapist who happens to see uh, healing and what is currently wrong with healing in the same way that I do. I met her by chance at a camping trip where she gave a workshop and it literally brought me to weeping because for the first time I had met someone quote unquote inside of the system who saw the dysfunction and the sickness of the system and was bringing in a revolution that feels like the call of my life. And so I get to geek out on this episode with her. Uh, the thing that I want to preface the podcast with is um, neither of us are recommending that if you are on a psychiatric med, that you stop taking it without the supervision of a medical licensed doctor who knows how to help you if that is the choice that you choose to make. And we are also not saying that um, you are wrong if you are on a pharmaceutical that is meant to quote unquote treat a mental disorder. Uh, one of the things that we focus on in the episode is what is called informed consent. And I could feel both of our passions mixing in the same way that uh, that might be how some people might interpret our passion for the lack of informed consent. So I just wanted to articulate super clearly, do not stop taking a psychiatric med cold turkey because there are very real biological reasons why that's dangerous. And also, you are not inherently wrong if you are on a psychiatric med and if it's helping you truly. Listen to your intuition, and if it's helping you, continue. And the major book that the two of us have pulled this model from is a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. It is a tremendous and challenging book, not in that it's hard to read, but that the content is heavy, and that if this podcast inspires you, that is the book to go check out. Um. It's a good one, and I truly enjoyed getting to talk to Kelly. And Kelly, thank you for your bravery and for every time I see her, what I tell her is, I'm so happy that you exist. I'm so happy that someone like you exists. Um, yeah, so without further ado, uh, after a little bit more ado, we will have the podcast with Kelly. But... If you would like to support the podcast, the most effective ways to do that are get on my newsletter at erigazzi.com. Check out my journaling course. You can find it at my website. And also check out the new course called the Dharma Journal, which is a upgrading of the journaling practice. Um, and share this podcast with anyone that you think it'll help. 
I would like to do this in a way where I never have to promote socks or fucking deodorant or whatever it is to you guys, because that's not what I want to do with your attention. I want to expose you to dope myths that will help you live a better life. So if you want to help me not talk about socks, those are ways that you can help support the podcast. As always, thank you so much for your time and your attention and your love, and please enjoy. Kelly Smith. So about a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, I went to this experience um, where it was like a conscious camping weekend. And uh, my guest today was one of the people who held a workshop. And we'll get into her story, but she is a psychiatrist. And she was telling me or she was teaching in a workshop, essentially ideas that I have been thinking about and exploring for the last year. And it was in such resonance with me that I started weeping during your workshop. I don't know if you saw. Because to hear someone inside of the system, because when I was younger, I wanted to be a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist. And that was the thing that I was battling against for a while. Um, since not going down that route and reading some of the same books that you mentioned, uh, one for everyone, you guys have heard me rant about this, but anatomy of an epidemic. Um, you essentially painted the picture of how our current state of mental illness fundamentally makes people more sick and that you started to articulate what you saw as the potential remedy to that. And you talked about like the new emergence of psychedelic research. You also talked about internal family systems, which I completely resonate with. And I talk about all the time on this podcast. And I was so excited to meet in person for the first time, someone inside of the system who feels like they see the system and can see a way to help guide the system to a place that actually helps people. And I just want to say thank you for existing. Thank you for choosing to walk through the beast and also being willing to have a podcast and being willing to talk about these ideas that you and I both know are so important for people to hear. And it's one thing for people to hear from a podcast host who talks about doing DMT and mushrooms and talks about like talking to entities and dreams. I think it's a whole nother level of um, comfort really to hear it from someone who has the degrees and the status that the game taught you, those are the things that you need to listen to. So I'm super excited to have you here on the podcast today. And just thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. So for the record, um, I'm a holistic psychotherapist, not a psychiatrist. Um, and we'll definitely be talking about psychiatry today. Yeah. So my first question is, um, can you kind of give us a brief story or as long as it needs to go to convey the depth of what brought you to wanting to get the academic training to become a psychotherapist? Well, um, the human mind has always fascinated me. <laughs> I've, you know, I grew up in an evangelical Christian family hmm. and I believe that I was experiencing an initiation illness around the age of seven, as were a lot of my spiritual gifts and my skill sets. 
that the culture and the family of origin and the religion that I was being brought up in did not understand, could not contain, didn't even have a reference point (laughs) for what was occurring in me. And so um, I had a mystery illness for about a year. Um, and my childhood was pretty medicalized. I had CT scans, fMRIs, blood draws almost every week, went to different doctors and specialists um, all over the state. I grew up in Texas. Do you mind if I asked what the symptoms were? Yeah, it was um, fevers that would last for weeks at a time, um, lethargy kind of not being able to get out of bed. Mm. I was a very vibrant and astute student. I loved going to school. And so that was very different for me. They at one point thought I had mono um, and that was kind of where they landed. I think I was having an adverse reaction to some medical procedures that were done to me and nobody put two and two together. So... Medical trauma is real. Yeah. <laughs> Being held down against your will as a child Absolutely. is is a trauma and nobody understood that. Right. And um, most people still don't. P- no. And this is something, medical trauma is something I work a lot with in the work that I do. Um, yeah. A quick note for people, if they want to go read some of the books on this, Peter Levine talks about this and some of his books on mm-hmm. trauma, but like the fundamental recipe to create acute PTSD right. or uh, shock trauma yep. is scare something mm-hmm. and then immobilize it. Right. And most surgeries, <laughs> especially on children, right. they're afraid. There's right. no bedside care. And right. then they have a chemical put into them that right. immobilizes them and it traps trauma. That's right. <laughs> so luckily, um, I've been on this path to healing myself and my nervous system for over 20 years. I mean, that's not necessarily what led me to study psychology. The truth is, is that my my father was like, just go to college, just do something, <laughs> right? And I was told that like, hey, if you get a bachelor's degree, you're good. Just just do that and you'll find a job. And I got my degree, my undergraduate degree in psychology. And then I was like, oh, I'm entirely unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> That's my story too. I ended up at Chipotle. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I quickly applied for graduate school and went into graduate school because I was paying my way through uh, my undergrad degree at UT um, by working in psychology labs. So that was really kind of what what sparked my interest in the career. I worked in a couple different cognitive and um, like emotional based neuroscience labs. We were working with animals and then I progressed to working with humans. So I saw this research process that happened at the academic level and I was hooked. I was so intrigued, Um, got to publish manuscripts and articles and it was just, it blew, blew me away. And so I had always thought I would go to graduate school to do research. That was always the goal. I never wanted to be a therapist. I always, (laughs) no offense to therapists. I always thought therapists were a little narcissistic in that, like, who are they to say that they have everything figured out and they're the expert? Like that has always rubbed me the wrong way. And it still does to this day. And, and furthermore, like we were discussing earlier before we started this podcast, (laughs) 
every most everybody I've met that is a psychotherapist, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist is deeply wounded. That is what led them right. to the path. Mine was medical trauma, right? And trying to understand my family dynamics that didn't make any sense right. from a religion that was repressing yep. emotions. <laughs> um, so... You know, we all come to this this line of work for different reasons, but I think at the end of the day, it's it's from our own wounding, and I and and I and there are a lot of therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists out there that haven't done their work, right. and you can't hold a good container or a healing environment if your shadow's still in the way. Right. Um, so that's that's a truth that I think we need to be honest about and yeah. we need to be transparent about it. And, and this is part of the paradigm shift I'm dreaming into being is that mm. drop this facade that there's anybody outside of you that knows you better than you. That yeah. is like the, <laughs> that's the most absurd concept I've ever heard, Yeah. but we are classically conditioned. We are trained as babies and infants and toddlers through the culture, through the media, through our own families, that doctors are God, <laughs> that there's somebody, there's an expert outside of you that know, that has the tools or the chemicals that's going to fix you. And right. that that leads us to a religion of, of medicine. Yeah. And, and that is what has to change. <laughs> And my intuition is that the best that psychotherapy can be or even psychiatry or a therapist can be to another person is they can, if they've done enough of their work, they can non-judgmentally witness you and then authentically reflect their intuition as almost a model for you to begin to hone listening to your intuition and that the ideal endpoint of a therapeutic relationship is that they've mirrored back to you what it's like to listen to that guidance inside of you so that you have attached to the thing that probably got ruptured by your family dynamics and the culture that you grew up in where you then leave the therapist mm -hmm. and you live your life with the inner therapist which is mm -hmm. essentially the intuition or that inner knowing mm -hmm. but that there's a economic model mm -hmm. behind our current state mm -hmm. of healing right where that is literally the antithesis of what the economic model requires for it to stay alive that's right and i can't tell you how many colleagues i have who whether they're conscious of this or not their end game their goal is to have people on their couch for 10 years you know it's like a for-profit prison <laughs> yeah that if somebody's on my couch for 10 years, that means I'm not doing my job. Yeah. And um, that's on me. That's not on the person to come in. That's on me to hold the space to know that like either I am not able to be in service or they need somebody else to work with. Yeah. Because, yeah, some cases of complex trauma might take 10 years, but not with one person. Right. Because all you've just created is a system of dependency. Yeah. Now you need me right. <laughs> to be okay. And that is the exact opposite of healing. Right. That's called disempowerment. Yeah. That's what makes people in the mental health fields like rich. Yeah. <laughs> it's disempowered people. And this, I want to uh, yeah. <laughs> stay with the developmental arc yes. and, and yes. then we will lampoon and do the dance. 
That's right. <laughs> uh, what was the key point for you that called you to uh, psychotherapy as opposed to research while you were currently still in school? So even in my graduate training, which was pretty traditional and mainstream, it was a clinical psychology program. And um, even through that, even in my like practicum experiences and internships, I, I would work at hospitals, I'd work in therapeutic settings. And I was still like, no, not for me. <laughs> like I can't, I can't. Um, I was still focused on research even in graduate school. And so it was, I got out of graduate school. Um, I got my license. I also completed a yoga teacher training program around that same time. So I was, you know, able to teach yoga and, and I was just like, maybe I'll just teach yoga. Like that's like a, it's a way to help people heal. And then I'll just do this like research gig. Cause the truth is you can make more money in clinical research than you can in psychotherapy just starting out. So I did a research job for about two or three years after um, graduate school. And I was like, yeah, this is so sterile. <laughs> this is so <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know about this. Um, I, I really want to like work with people. That, that started to become more of like my heart's desire. And got heavily involved in yoga and the yoga community and, and just working with different teachers, studying with different teachers and lineages. And that, that opened me up to, to the practice of, you know, healing arts and the traditional, um, the traditional practices with indigenous people. And that is a delicate conversation to have as a white woman. Um, I would never use the term shamanism for, for the education that I've received around these, these trainings, um, because that's not, um, my heritage. And, um, and I think we do a disservice to, to respecting these lineages by co-opting them. Right. But the, yeah. but these were, these were the practices I was being exposed to. I went on a yoga retreat and, there was a shamanic practitioner there and we did a fire ceremony. And for the first time in my life, like there was no plants involved. This was just a fire. Something like switched in my nervous system. And I finally was like, oh, this is what it means to be embodied. Like I was probably 27 or 28. And I was like, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm in my body. Yeah. And I didn't. <laughs> you don't know that you're not in your body until right. you're back in it, right? right? And so that was a very profound experience. It felt like this coming home to me. And that was just one fire ceremony. And one of the things that comes up for me that I think is a really fertile place for me to continue having conversations with other people, but this feels like it's bringing it up for the first time on the podcast, is it's like uh, we are a part of a culture that has a history of dominating and conquesting and co-oping. Yep. And we are sick. Yep. The way my mind navigates this place is um, because we are so powerful as a culture and we are so sick as a culture, if we don't heal, yep. we are going to real, realistically and probably end life on the planet. And so anything that we can do mm -hmm. to help begin to heal mm -hmm. 
could potentially be our pathway to honoring the insane, uncomprehensible cruelty that the culture that we are children of have brought to the world. And that there's this really delicate balance with, you know, quote unquote white people, but for lack of a better word, people who are children of Western culture being healed by the indigenous practices of the people that are culture conquested. Yes. And I was actually at a Native American sweat lodge last night. And one of the white men who had trained enough to know how to run this in the ceremonial way that it was done by the Native Americans who inhabited this land, he said something really profound. And it's like, it is our responsibility to honor sensitively the medicine that's healing us from the people that we've conquested. Yes. And I think that um, if cult, if the term cultural appropriation is used simply as a weapon of power mm-hmm. to be wielded by mm-hmm. people who <laughs> want to create guilt and shame in other people, right. we are actually creating a wall of the organism that is sick, that if not healed, might end life on the planet. Yes. And just trying to navigate as someone who has fundamentally been transformed by many different indigenous lineages. um, What is my stewardship with the healing that these things have brought me to help heal this thing that we are children of Mm -hmm. so that we can do right by the tribes and races of people that even though we weren't directly responsible for it, we are the children of the Mm -hmm. thing that led to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been studying Kurundarismo and these practices for nine years now. I've had um, two to three different teachers. And one of my teachers in Mexico said to me, you know, your culture is sick. (laughs) This is their view. This is why they're willing to teach people like me is that they're like, your culture is sick and we know it and you know it. Like, that's why you're here. (laughs) That's why you're coming to me to try and figure this out and studying different ways of healing because you realize the West doesn't know what they're talking about in terms of healing. And so she's like, I am willing to, to teach you these practices so that you can take them back to your culture and help your culture heal. I have that blessing. Now it doesn't mean I don't get accused of cultural appropriation and I'm I'm willing to have these conversations because these conversations need to be had. I would never use the term shaman. I would never call myself a curandera. That's not my heritage. Um, however, I'm, I'm initiated into the Pachacuta Mesa tradition in Peru. I, I mean, I had elders that trusted me with this wisdom. So I don't take that lightly. And right. I had to learn everything, unlearn everything <laughs> from graduate school and learn this new indigenous way of of seeing healing in the human body. Totally opposite of everything, you know, right. I was still paying on my graduate student loans for. Which is such an interesting thing to feel into that uh, you got to a level of understanding and healing that was showing you that the thing that you are literally still in debt to right. taught you how to do it in a way that at best is ineffective. And at worst, makes people more sick. Is harming people. And I want to connect back to the developmental arc to get yes. us to 
where you are now, but so at some point you make the choice. It sounds like after having some really transformative experiences outside of the Western model mm-hmm. to actually work with people. Mm-hmm. And then you started a practice. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of tell us what the, what the story was of those first couple of years where you started the practice before you had your, Oh my God moment mm-hmm. that I think was probably triggered by reading the book anatomy of an epidemic. That's right. So what really kind of prompted me after these, these spiritual experiences or spiritual awakening processes. I mean, I think spiritual awakening is layer by layer, but uh, when that first layer got peeled back for me, um, you know, I had worked at psychiatric hospitals. I had seen the inside of these places and it hurt me. (laughs) It hurt me at the heart level that like there is a rotating door and especially for black indigenous people of color in that system, you come in, maybe you're having a psychotic episode, you get doused with two to three different (laughs) forms of chemical (laughs) restraints. And um, at best, you might get a little bit of individual and group therapy. At best, maybe you don't get to see the sun. You don't get to go outside. The food they feed you is fucking bullshit. (laughs) It's not. There are no nutrients in that food. It's all carbs. There's no way your brain could heal on that diet. And then you don't get to see the sun. You don't get to exercise. It's basically like prison. So I would see these, these people come in, get stabilized, leave. Two to three weeks later same fucking cycle all over again. And I just, and then, then being exposed to some of these other ways of approaching the mind and the body and the soul and healing, I was like, okay, I mean, if this is what, if this is the model and the system, I mean, maybe I could do it a little bit differently. I've always been a little bit skeptical about the medical model. Well, it's easy um, to be skeptical because it literally <laughs> is not effective. Like if if you're watching. Yeah. But I mean, even before I got exposed to these renegade psychiatrists and <clears throat> these renegade therapists, people in the movement, like Dr. Kelly Brogan, if you've ever followed her work, um, who right now she's under attack. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of propaganda out there if you start speaking out against the medical model. One of the things that arises for me that I'm constantly trying to navigate as my platform grows is there's this quote by Buckminster Fuller Mm -hmm. and it's um, the best way to replace a system is not to attack a system, but to create a new system That's that's so much better that replaces the old system. Yep. And like, there's a couple of things here that I try to anchor to constantly. And one is that most of the people who are in the system if you met them Mm one-on-one, genuinely are trying to help heal people. Mm -hmm. And they're working with the tools that they've been given. Mm -hmm. And if they hear a message that is not uh, smooth Mm -hmm. of how they're wrong, Mm -hmm. it is human nature. I'm going to defend my ideas as if it's a manifestation of my body and I will fucking attack you. Right. And so that strategy of the people who know other effective ways of healing is not the way to go. And then the other one to feel into is it's, um, it's one to critique a system. Um, I think it's more effective. And this is the place that I'm trying to go is it's like, how can I organically create a grass root movement that the things that I'm teaching shows people viscerally, oh, wow, this actually helps. And then their friends see that something is changing. So their friends ask them. 
and there's an actual change that begins to happen that doesn't need a critique because the effectiveness is the argument for the thing. Yes. And I recognize that I'm in a unique position where I have a platform and I have freedom and I'm not relying on a license to bring me clientele. And one of the things, and I just want to like plant the seed with you too, and maybe it comes up, but it's like, it really seems that the way that we are going to help heal the system as fast as it's able to potentially be healed is to inspire the change of story mm -hmm. of the people who are already in the beast, as mm -hmm. opposed to saying you're fucked up for being mm -hmm. a part of the thing that's fucked up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it feels like the thing that does that are beautiful stories, art, um, parable, myth, analogy. And that's at least my mind frame of where I'm trying to go because um, the systems are in place mm -hmm. and they're big. And there are plenty of people who have good hearts who are inside of the system. And yes. the more good hearts inside of the system that we can wake up as we create effective tools outside of the system feels like it's the way. Yes, absolutely. That's very well said. I mean, I have stayed pretty quiet this whole time on my social media. I mean, I'm a little bit more outspoken on my website, but not much. I don't. I don't share these views with most people because I'm not here to change people's minds. <laughs> it's not. But what I can do is offer a service that is different from the current system and from the current paradigm. And, and I think that, you know, I'm not the only one. <laughs> no. I'm really not. There are other people out there like me. And I think a lot of us are, you know, we, keep to ourselves because we see what happens if if you speak out and you speak up. Um, the system is designed <laughs> to, to gaslight and make wrong the people that say, hey, what about this system over here? What if we tried it this way? Like, no, you're crazy. You're a quack. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right. There's this incredible idea that I've been exposed to recently where it's like ideas have immune systems and yeah. ideas have protectors. Yes. And that like one of the best protectors of the ideas that are the ones that are propped up by the current system that we're in. And I don't know the name that we could give that, but it's essentially if we can create a label for any type of person that has a antagonistic idea, that if I use that label for them, it will instantly discredit them right. to the people who are still the consumers of the system that I'm a part mm -hmm. of. And we have a whole list of labels. Mm -hmm that as soon as you don't sing the song of mm -hmm. the marching band that's going off the side of the cliff, we will label you as this thing that is essentially a spell yes. to get people who um, don't have the internal resources to do the research required to start to get a large scale perspective. And it's just like, oh, those are the pariahs. Those right. are the people with the illness that if you mm -hmm. go around them, it's going to make you sick too. Mm -hmm. But I want to because I feel like we're right at the point where we, where I can just unleash you and then all the <laughs> things will come out is that um, you got to see what the current psychiatric model looked like as it was unfolding in the hospitals that you were a part mm -hmm. of or the clinics. You started your own practice. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear what that first phase of your practice mm -hmm. looked like, both what were the models that you were using, what were the results that you were getting, and then coming to the 
oh my God, I just read this book and now mm -hmm. everything's changed. Yes. So I like to say that I wish I could give refunds to everybody <laughs> in the first year or two of my practice. Um, I think if they're being honest, all new therapists and clinicians have imposter syndrome. Um, you're under supervision for 3,000 hours at a minimum. So wow. somebody is monitoring your work and then From someone inside giving the system. you feedback and telling you all the things you're doing wrong and how you're a bad therapist. And so that's kind of like the grooming process of becoming a therapist. It's intense. And so most people don't have confidence in their skills at that point. The training that I did was, like I said, it was pretty traditional. I did get exposed to psychodynamic theory, which was, I think, part of my saving grace. Cognitive behavioral therapy is just, I'm not, it's not, <laughs> it goes back to that whole thing. You can't heal the ego with the ego. So if we're going to use cognitive behavioral therapy to, to for behavior modification of somebody with depression, for example, like you're basically trying to micromanage and control the way somebody thinks. Right. Which What's super interesting for me, and I would love to hear hear what comes up for you is the thing that I found that that finally convinced me don't go the conventional route like essentially learn how to run a business so that you can make your own profit so you're not um, beholden to the people that will give you grants or whatever and that you can actually create things that can help people at scale is actually David Byrne's book, Feeling Better yes. or Feeling Good, Yep. Um, they did a study out of Alabama where they found that just giving someone this book mm -hmm. was uh, statistically significantly more effective at alleviating symptoms of depression compared to the standard model, mm -hmm. however they quantify that. And what that did for me was, oh my God, there's proof of concept that if you make a good enough product, a good enough information container that even if I die, it can help someone heal. Like that completely opened me up. It wasn't until 10 years later when I started to learn about how trauma operates, where I realized the absolute ineffectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy beyond just managing the mind. But the mm -hmm. thing that just came up for me maybe in the last two weeks it was kind of this like, oh my God moment, which is CBT was regarded as the motherfucking gold, standard, the gold standard for like 20 or 30 yep. years <laughs> because compared to our standard intervention, it was so much more effective. And what, and I'm getting goosebumps now is it's like, what is a more alarming message that our culture is so out of alignment with what health would be that CBT, which is the ego trying to train the ego was significantly more effective than what we were currently doing, but that once you connect to like how trauma operates, mm -hmm. how fundamentally how trauma operates is that it doesn't even, it's like 10% of the way mm -hmm. and that we are so far gone that that was the gold standard mm -hmm. for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, when I first saw it, I was like, CBT is the way. Cause it's so good. <laughs> yeah. I thought that too at one point. And now I'm at the perspective where I'm like, oh my God, that's the canary in the coal mine of <laughs> right. how absolutely out of alignment we are with what actual healing is. And so I just wanted to yeah. share that. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, and 
if somebody finds healing in CBT, by all means. I think it's a great place I, to meet the average wounded Western mind to begin. It's a starting point, but you're definitely not going to transform your psyche that way. I completely agree. Um, and when you say you were exposed to psychodynamic psychology, mm-hmm. is that like depth or depth. Jungian psychology? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely changed my life too. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of opened me up to the spiritual side of psychology in a lot of ways. And um so I was doing the CBT, doing psychodynamic work, kind of around family of origin. Mind you, I didn't get a lick of training about trauma in my graduate program. Yep. Nobody talked about trauma. And now I look back on that. I'm like, really? How? Yeah. How is that possible? All the trainings and certifications I've done after the fact were because I started to see it in the in the the consulting room. I started to see that, like, no, we can't talk your trauma away. Like that's nonsense. So I started, um, so it was 2013 that I really started studying, um, with indigenous teachers, like full on devoting myself. And, and at what year did you start your practice? If 2013 is when you started? Okay. So for about three years, mm-hmm. you tried the old I tried, model. I was referring to people to psychiatrists at that point still, and I still have guilt about that. <laughs> and if we could stay there for a moment, can you just kind of give a brief overview of like um, what the results you were seeing? So like what you were sharing was essentially cognitive behavioral therapy. And some attachment. Okay. Attachment therapy. I mean, I, that was that was a big piece of it. And... I don't know, people love attachment therapy and I still I still kind of see it as a starting point because it's basically the notion that um, I'm going to be your good enough mother. <laughs> you get to have a redo with me where I'll be good enough as your mother figure, right? But I'm going to sit in this chair, you sit in that chair, right. we're going to be in a sterile room. Right. I'm not going to do anything that will actually change how right. the way your nervous system feels about me. Right. I'm, you're going to tell me all your deepest, darkest fears and secrets, and I get to be a blank slate where you know nothing about me. How? <laughs> and that it's actually unprofessional if I give you any right. part of my life to right. create empathy. Right. So I don't believe that you need somebody outside of yourself to reparent you. I don't, I don't believe that. And a lot of people in the attachment community would not like to hear that. (laughs) And I think that the, um, our, the, uh, compassion there is it's not needed. It can help. It can help. But ultimately what you're articulating is you have the inner resources That's for right. this not to be dependent on That's another. That's right. Because otherwise all we're doing is creating a relationship of codependency. And that if I'm a really good therapist, I can hold that for a short amount of time right. to model just a little bit. Right. And then I let you go. Like, That's right. Exactly. And I teach you the skills so that... Because look, if somebody has complex PTSD, they, psychologically and developmentally, they might be at a toddler level. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. So do they need more containment and holding the first couple sessions? Yeah. I'm not going to stay in that dynamic with them. But the truth is, is that our culture at best is psychologically still in the adolescent stage. So I could not agree I, more. I mean, have you read Bill... <laughs> 
Plotkin's work. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love you. <laughs> so yes, I'm good. So yeah. you do that for about three years. Yeah. The average like best case result you get is. Well, I mean, people would give me good feedback. That's the thing is that being an empathic listener is helpful for right. some people. Being a witness is helpful for some people. So I never got like negative feedback. I'm sure maybe there was some, maybe people just didn't share it, but I didn't feel like, um, I don't know. I wanted to see transformation. I wanted to see people like just totally liberated. And I definitely wasn't seeing that. Um, and so now 2013, so 2013, I had a deeper form of a spiritual awakening, um, that included a dark night of the soul because I was, I just, Again, instinctually, this medical model has never resonated with me even before I got exposed to all the renegades. S- somebody in passing, you know, mentioned the anatomy of an epidemic. They also mentioned the book, Your Drugs May Be Your Problem. And I read both of those, it, you know, as I'm doing this deeper shamanic healing work. And so, again, it was like somebody flipped this switch. It was like somebody peeled back the veil. <laughs> and I got to see that, like, everything I've been told about psychiatry and, you know, the myth of a chemical imbalance and how these drugs save lives and and all of this, like, I'd always been kind of skeptical. But this these books, I was like, okay, so, like, there is another way to look at this. I have just never met anybody. So I was just going along with with the mainstream because that is all that was being offered to me. I get this taste of the renegades and I go down the rabbit hole. Like I get every single renegade psychiatry in the movement that I can get. And what you were alluding to earlier about us coming up with these terms to other the other. So anti-psychiatry gets thrown around a lot. And I've been called an anti-psychiatry therapist. And I don't, That's not how I describe myself. We're never going to be in a drug-free society. We never will. And that includes psychotropic drugs. I don't think we should be in a drug-free society. The war on drugs is is a racist form of control. And so, like, same with with the pharmaceutical industry. If you want to take these drugs, by all means, as long as you've had informed consent. And here's here's the point where I get goosebumps, is informed consent. And it's that... So for people who are listening that this feels radical at all, I deeply, deeply recommend that you take the time to check out the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. I believe it's about 700 pages, mm-hmm. has over 800 citations, and he painstakingly mm-hmm. goes through a very nuanced argument. And I think the best that it can be summed up is that at best, most of our psychiatric meds can numb you in such Mm -hmm. a way where Mm -hmm. the way that we try to measure your illness, which is symptoms, will be reduced. That's right. But it's often temporary. Yes. And then a chemical dependence is created on almost any of these classes of psychiatric meds. And here's where it gets really confusing and interesting for like doctors, which is um, they have been taught that these medications are not addictive. Mm-hmm. And so when people get off of them, mm-hmm. their symptoms look worse. Mm-hmm. And so to a doctor who hasn't done the deep research, it looks like, oh, I gave them this thing. Their symptoms reduced. Mm-hmm. They went off of these things. The symptoms are worse. 
Right. So the thing's working. Mm-hmm. What anatomy of an epidemic painstakingly follows with all the major classes of psychiatric drugs is that they actually create a chemical dependence. Mm-hmm. What you are seeing is a withdrawal symptom. That's right. And that if you can hold them and give them the things that empower their natural biology long enough, you'll see a natural uptick Mm -hmm. and then they will be better essentially for the rest of their life if they never go back on the thing. And that the longer they're on the psychiatric intervention, the deeper the chemical dependency can get. And that depending on the class of drug, the chemical dependency symptoms can last for up to two years if it's a benzo. And that we're just now starting to get since that book was published, I think it was like 2010-ish, um, maybe it was a little bit later than that, but we are just now getting the long-term efficacy studies of mm-hmm. a lot of these psychiatric meds. And what we are finding is that the punchline is none of them are safe right. in the long-term. Right. And that what has been so sticky for doctors is that they're confusing the coming back of the symptoms with withdrawal symptoms. That's right. They'll say, see, you're depressed again. That means you need this for the rest of your life. That means your brain is broken. And if you have an expert telling you your brain is broken, <laughs> guess what happens? Yeah. Your brain starts to not work because of that belief system. I've seen people in protracted withdrawal states for longer than two years. Uh, I've seen the SSRIs are notorious for protracted withdrawal. And what protracted withdrawal is, is erratogenic, erratogenic injury, medically induced injury. And this is what the, I've spent the, the last eight-ish years in my practices you know, helping people clinically recover from these kinds of injuries. And so it's not honored or known. We have no long-term research studies. These, the the SSRIs, the benzos, the mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, they're all studied at a maximum of three to six months. We have no studies on withdrawal. So, oh, and furthermore, all family practice family practice doctors are prescribing these more than psychiatrists i believe the statistic um, is something like 90 something percent of the psychiatric meds prescribed are written not by psychiatrists right. but written by family doctors that's right who have no training in psychiatry so the family practice doctors and the psychiatrists get their education about pharmaceuticals from the pharmaceutical company this is another thing that's <laughs> mapped out in the book and i want to after I give this riff, because I can feel like if there's anyone listening who's on any of these things, they're going to yes. start to feel fear. But the thing that I want to lay out real quick is that he, again, painstakingly paints the map of the history of how it unfolded, where a law got passed by the American Psychiatric Association mm-hmm. in like 1980, mm-hmm. where they allowed for essentially infinite funding to begin to come from pharma companies. Yep. Pharma companies then also got the legal right from the APA to pay the top psychiatrist to host talks. Mm-hmm. And it's written, and it's in the book, that the APA gave the pharmaceuticals the last say on approving whatever the talks were. And then over the course of a couple of years... The most prominent psychiatrists were essentially paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per year by these pharma companies to give certain talks. And those psychiatrists became the ones that wrote the books 
mm-hmm. that were then taught to the mm-hmm. students that were coming into their psychiatry training. And I've, I lurk on the subreddit psychiatry just mm-hmm. to hear like how these people are talking. And what's really interesting is that when they go into their graduate training, they're not even, there is not even a class to begin to talk about whether or not this is the way. It's you have two to three years of studying thousand page books that are just about the, you have to memorize all the different meds mm-hmm. and you have to memorize their reactions to other meds. Mm-hmm. And you get three years into this expensive training where you've, you're now sunk cost fallacy starts to work to keep you inside of the model yes. where you spent three years of the best part of your life memorizing something that when that person hears what we're talking about completely invalidates all the chess right. moves that they've learned. Right. Their first reaction is fuck you. I know. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. I know. And so um, there's a clear history of how the APA on some level has at the very least been influenced by pharma companies. But um, I would love for you to share uh, for the people who either know someone or are currently on any of these things. And they're like, oh my God, what are they saying? I should just quit today. No, I'm by no means saying stop taking psychiatric medications. It's actually quite dangerous to do that cold turkey. Um, I have a ton of compassion for anybody who suffers with depression and suicidality and anxiety, any of the mental health concerns, right? I, I deeply understand what it's like to suffer. And I also deeply understand what it's like to, to reach for remedies, of course. Um, and then to start to learn a different paradigm and, and realize that there might be side effects that you weren't told about. And this is the informed consent This piece. is the informed consent. We're is back to the informed consent. Almost be- no one has no, been given informed no, consent. No, I mean, you can read it on the little insert that you get when you pick up your prescription from the pharmacy. It's on there in black and white. But I don't think most people read that. And, and what's not on there is, oh, you will very, that what's not on the, the insert is that uh, we've changed the definition of what addiction means mm-hmm. in the process of creating these with our lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And uh, the you're not told that most of these are addictive. Right. And that um, you will have withdrawal symptoms right. that will appear as a more exaggerated version of the illness. They'll say, they will say that you'll have withdrawal for up to two weeks, okay. which is not true. Right. That's just, it's blatantly not true. That's <laughs> just, that, that's not, I've seen hundreds of examples of how that's not true. Neuroadaptation occurs when you take anything, coffee, nicotine, anything, your nervous system is going to rewire to that substance, anything, ketamine, all of it, right? So the same is true for SSRIs. Now, the SSRIs, this is also written on the the package insert, they have a black box warning. They are known to increase suicidality and homicide. That's on the insert. So the remedy that we're offering to people who are suicidal is possibly more suicidality, right? So I don't think, I think proper informed consent happens between a healthcare professional and the patient in the same room. And it's a, it's a conversation. 
That's not happening. This is what I'm advocating for. This is why I wake up in the morning and continue to do the work that I'm doing is proper informed consent. I am not trying to talk anybody out of getting some relief because sometimes in the short term, yeah, sometimes you need it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just want to make sure people understand that these pills are incredibly easy to start. They're not so easy to stop. And the one thing to offer to people is um, there is this researcher that won a bunch of awards because he essentially exposed how poorly most research methods are done in almost all soft sciences. I forget his name. I wish I could remember it. He's Greek. And he did a super rigorous meta-analysis on SSRIs. And what he did find Mm -hmm. is that for the most severely depressed, SSRIs are effective above placebo Mm -hmm. for up to and no longer than Mm -hmm. six months. Mm -hmm. And the uh, more effective than placebo, so we have a rating scale of how we rate depression, and that in order for something to be significant, I believe it's a three-point difference on that scale. It gives a three-point difference on that scale, but Mm -hmm. only up to six months and only for Mm -hmm. the most severely depressed. Mm -hmm. And just to give um, some uh, anchoring other effects, if you heal your sleep, Mm -hmm. you get a six-point improvement. Mm -hmm. If you start gardening for a month, Mm -hmm. they find that you get a five-point improvement. Mm -hmm. So that gives the context, but I, I do want to articulate that we do have really good rigorous research that shows for the most severely depressed, for mm-hmm. six months or less, these things can be a stolting function a to band-aid. then help you. Right. To then help you do the things that you now teach right. people, which right. I would love to be the place that we start to get into yes. to like yeah. give people some hope. Yeah. 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 This isn't all gloom and doom. There's actually a lot of great um you know, visionaries kind of dreaming of this new paradigm and what healing can look like. And I've seen people liberate themselves from the pharmaceutical industry more times than I can count. It is possible, but I would never recommend that. If you've been on the drug longer than six months, you need to do it under medical care. I work with different holistic and functional medicine doctors. We do this process of a slow taper under medical supervision. Uh, and you know, I, it's possible and it's also okay if you stay on it for the rest of your life, that's okay too. There's no, it's not a judgment on personal choice. It's making sure that you have all the information before you make that choice. And I tell people six months. Yeah, that's my, that's, you know, that hopefully you can learn different ways of being and walking through this earth within six months and then try something else. So for about five years, I've been getting downloads of, um, of a new paradigm in mental health healing. I by no means think that I'm the only one. I mean, I know other people out there are getting this, this, this information, it's in the ethers, it's out there, right? And I'm not the only one. I'm not going to be the key player, but I'm going to be part of this movement of, um, you know, a, a concept that's really big in the psychosis community. I, I actually prefer to call it a spiritual emergency. I think psychosis is quite um, quite a loaded term. 
So in the spiritual emergence communities, um, peer-led or community mental health is, um, is a model that they have demonstrated over and over again to be not only cost-effective, but more effective than individual therapy. So one of the things I have learned from Indigenous teachers is that they kind of think it's a little funny, this model we have of one-on-one healing. Mm-hmm. They're like, what? Like, it's just you and one other person? <laughs> That's bizarre to them because they have always, since the beginning of their civilizations, healed in circles. You heal with your community. That is, that's how humans have always done it. But we live in this American culture of rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it yourself. Don't be vulnerable. Don't need other people, right? So that's just, that's the model, but clearly it's not working. So something you just said earlier, and there's tons of research about this, you can put a person out in nature for Mm. three to six hours, and it's more effective than an SSRI. I would love to afterwards get the links to those studies because I will memorize them. Yes. So you don't even have to be running. You don't have to be gardening. You don't have to be doing anything. Just sitting outside. I love that. I'm going to be It's just as effective as an antidepressant. Then you throw in exercise on top of that. Exercise... Heart rate variability, raising your heart rate for at least 30 minutes for, I'll need to double check. I think it's four to five times a week, more effective than an SSRI, better than Prozac. So, you know, our lifestyles in America doesn't, it's not conducive to that. We don't have three hours to go be outside. So the vision is... um, I I believe that regenerative farming and organic farming yes <laughs> yes is a revolutionary act right now. Oh, and um I believe so there's a couple of models of this in the UK it's called mental health care farms. So Graham, write it down for me, bro. Yeah, and I'm happy to share some of these resources with you. So mental health care farms are basically retreat-like settings where people come and work on a farm as their mental health treatment. Mm. There's some therapists Mm. involved, but but it's back to this peer-led community-based mental health model that the people who have, let's just say, because my vision, the vision I'm holding is for helping people extricate themselves out of the pharmaceutical industry. So the farm I'm going to be creating is part and parcel of having people do a slow taper off of psych drugs as they're re-engaging their relationship with with the first mother, right? I love and you. so we put our hands in soil. We work on the farm. We have a purpose already. We're in a community of other like-minded people. And then we're learning about gut health because we're going to eat mm. <laughs> all of the food, right? And um, and, and there's this re-education about um, how everything you put in your mouth has a direct impact on your mental health. This is something the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want you to understand. That inflammation (laughs) is one of the number one causes of mental health issues, apart from trauma. Interestingly, trauma causes a chronic state of inflammation. So then you're feeling like shit, you're triggered all the time, you're depressed, you're anxious, your body is going to reach for carbs, it's a vicious cycle. It's going to keep going. So this this vision is we heal the land, we heal the earth, 
while we're healing the humans. Um, but there's a there's a steady stream of income coming in from the farm, which is how you start to pay for some of your treatments. Because I don't, what I want to change in the mental health system is that I don't think only rich elite people should be able to access holistic healing modalities. Yes. If you're on Medicare, your only choice is mainstream medicine. That's yeah. it. You don't, you do not get to, to go and do anything else. When I was super immersed in the yoga scene, it was all white, rich women, <laughs> yep. which is fine. They need to work out and have spirituality. That's great. And, why can't other people do this too? So I, I, there are some beautiful holistic alternatives to psychiatric hospitals, which is what I intend to build, but they're $30,000 for a 30 day stay. And that's just not going to work for me. (laughs) Uh, so, um, there's a place called Serenity Star in, in, uh, Stephenville about an hour from Austin and they are an addiction and substance abuse treatment facility, but they take a holistic approach and they have a sliding scale and people can come. I, you know, it's, it might've changed the last time that I was in communication with them on average, you pay $500 that gets you into the program. And then they have a cafe. So you work while you're working your program. You're doing, they, they have a 12-step model, but it's different than the traditional 12-step model. But you're doing your steps, right? And then every day you're going to work at this cafe. So all that money that's being generated from the cafe is then paying for your treatment. Yes. So I want to create um, cooperatives. So the very first arm of this business is a nonprofit. It's called Earth Pharma, P-H-A-R-M-A. It's a play on words for big pharma. I love it. And that is going to be the way that we apply for grants um, to be able to, to be in service to underserved communities. Eventually, there will be either a hybrid or a for-profit arm of the business that is able to receive investors' investment money. Um because spoiler alert, there will also be plant medicines here. We will grow our own plants because I wholeheartedly believe that prohibition will end. It will. In my lifetime, I'm going to just hold out. (laughs) Um, And that now more than ever, and we didn't even really talk about the research with psychedelics. There's, that's, you know, that's probably a whole other conversation, but also happy to share all of that. Because it means you have to come back. (laughs) So um, I believe that one of the greatest tools for healing trauma out of the nervous system and at the soul level which is what I'm interested in. The soil level? Sorry. The the soy, soil, soul level. If people don't like the word soul, I don't have to use that term. We can say higher self. You're talking to people who are okay with the word soul. I know y'all are, but like, I know sometimes that word, people are like, oh, you lost me. Um, What if we say higher self? Um, Because there's more than one, you know, timeline here. (laughs) So let's just say the more evolved version of you, that part of your energy essence knows exactly how to heal you. Do you actually need a psychedelic outside of yourself to facilitate your healing? No, you really don't. Because I have seen people in the movement become dependent on 
psychedelics. Now let's it's, just say that again. <laughs> it's the same thing I'm talking about in psychiatry, that if we're reaching for the remedy outside of ourself, we're bound to suffer. So what's the what's that saying in the psychedelic movement? When you when you hear the answer, or you receive the call, like hang up the phone. Right. You don't need to go to ayahuasca ceremonies every weekend. Not that people, well, yeah, some people are doing that, but like you don't you don't need to do that. I mean, you can do that, but I've seen people be harmed. I've seen harm done by you can go too far out in the psyche and then not be able to come back. All medicine in excess <laughs> becomes poison. That's right. And so do I think that that psychedelics are for everybody who wants to safely taper off of a psych drug? No. Do I think that psychedelics are for everybody with complex PTSD and trauma? No. There are certain people that should not dissolve their ego boundaries until there is more containment. And maybe never. Um, however, in a farm-like setting, you would have the option. Um, obviously, this land is in Texas. This is my great-grandmother's land. She used this farmland to survive the Great Depression. Um, she and my grandfather immigrated from Czechoslovakia. They landed in a port near Houston and then migrated up to central Texas. And so this land is 45 minutes from Austin. It's in Granger. So we're not going to be working with the plant medicines until we can legally. Um, but CBD is a plant medicine. So, um, And there's a ton of different herbs that Absolutely. we can grow already that are great for mental health purposes and trauma. Um, flowers. Let's just take the rose, for example. Mm. I mean, you, can, <laughs> I can work energetically with a rose and you can work with the energy of a rose to open somebody's heart um, if they want to. So it doesn't have to be psychedelic properties. There are plenty of other plants. The... The shamans in Peru are known as the original pharmacists. You can you can walk with them in 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 the landscape of the jungle with over four thousand plant species, and they can point to each one and be like, "This one's for high blood pressure. This one's for if you're sad." Right? Like, it's not just psychedelic plants. Obviously, I have affinity to them, but like. Uh, and I'm not saying people need to eat a vegan diet. I'm not saying that like plant-based eating is for everybody. However, when somebody is coming off of psychotropics, you want the body to be in a, a as much of a pH balanced state and alkaline state as possible. And plants do that. Yep. Uh, meat causes a acidic reaction in the body. And I'm not saying don't eat meat. I eat meat. It's okay. Like, but if we're talking about like holistically clearing people out of chemicals, yeah. then we, we want to have a clean system. Yeah. I think so. the thing to relax into is, uh, you are of nature. Nature yes. has seasons. Mm -hmm. And depending on what nature is telling you, the yes. ecosystem is telling you what new thing to put more into. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the season is meat. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the season is plant. Sometimes the season is both. Sometimes That's the season right. is fasting. Yep. The, the place that I want to move to, because mm -hmm. I know that you have a time restraint that we, I could talk to you for days. <laughs> um, let's say that someone that the average type patient, and I know that that's not even possible. Just say that someone comes into your practice mm -hmm. um, and they're going to start to work with you. What's your model for the first six weeks? 
I would mm-hmm. love to kind of give people a really clear, like step by step, how you start to dance with someone who's ready to work with you. Mm-hmm. Well, from the very first day that we meet, um, I tell people up front that if you're looking for somebody outside of you to heal you, I'm not your person. <laughs> so I just want to like make sure that every everybody understands that I'm not going to work harder than you. <laughs> I'm just not because I want to make sure that people understand that my the lens I'm looking through is empowerment and personal empowerment means you take responsibility for yourself, means you pull yourself out of victim consciousness. And, you know, I I wouldn't say it quite that directly if somebody is in a state of crisis and super struggling, right? But I'm going to set a boundary and make it pretty clear from the get-go that you're the only one that can heal yourself. Right. The, the image that comes up for me is you will lean over the dock and have an mm-hmm. outstretched hand, but mm-hmm. you are going to have one arm around mm-hmm. the pillar and you're not coming off the dock. Right. And so if they want to come up with you, they right. can, you'll that's, have a hand. Yes. I love that. That's a good, that's a good metaphor. Um, and then there's a conversation about trauma and educating people on how trauma that stuck in your nervous system is going to show up as any mental health s- symptom. And so the thing that I want to highlight here for listeners is what she is saying, I think this is really important to connect to, is first, empower you. Mm-hmm. The very first thing after that is we're going to talk about trauma. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening, if you haven't, check out my podcast, What is Trauma? Mm-hmm. It's completely informed by Levine and The Body Keeps the Score. And it's by far and away the most popular podcast because it's clearly a need. Yes. And so you don't have to get into the details okay. un- unless you think that there's something outside of what those books share. Um, the the one thing I didn't cover in that article is kind of depth into complex PTSD because yeah. I hadn't gotten to that point yet. Because yeah. once I started doing that research, I was like, that's its own motherfucking post. But for people listening, they'll be able to go check out that resource. Mm-hmm. And so I just mm-hmm. want to let you know. Yes. And the only thing I would add to that is that because I, there, there is a spiritual component to my work. I mean, I meet people where they're at. If we don't want to go super deep into the spiritual realm, we by no means have to. But the way that I explain trauma is that you know, modern psychology would say there's a part of you that's been fractured off from your awareness or your personality, or the indigenous traditions would say there's been a part of your soul or your higher self that has been fractured off from your essence energy. And so what we're going to be doing in the work together is learning how to reclaim what's already yours, what has always been yours. And at the end of the day, actually can't really be broken. The fracturing is only at the lens of the conscious mind. Right. It's a remembering <laughs> that you aren't fractured. Right. And and that it, it coming back to the empowerment thing that you're the only one in your unconscious mind. I'm not in there. I'm not. So I can't go into your unconscious mind and rewire things for you. I can hold the flashlight. <laughs> And be like, hey, what about that? Right? But like, I can't be in there doing it for you. And for people listening, what's some like technical specific things that you would do with people 
in that first process where you're dancing with trauma? Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on if they're in crisis. It depends on their current state. Sometimes we need to regulate the nervous system. Sometimes we need to learn exercises that will, because look, a trauma survivor, it's actually not safe to invite all of their essence energy 100% back into the vessel. Exactly. And that's, that's so not, important for people to understand. It's not okay. And that can, be, that can feel very threatening to yep. people. So explaining all of this, right, that... All I want is like one tiny ounce of you to feel like it's okay to be in this room. (laughs) Don't need all of you to be here today, right? So we start with tiny baby steps in regulation of the nervous system. So there's different ways of doing that. Cold and hot is one, right? Um, Obviously, breathing techniques, pranayama, I would never do like holotropic breath work with somebody the first time I'm meeting them, obviously, and especially not if they have complex PTSD. Um, But that's a, that's a wonderful tool. Like maybe if we're six weeks in, right. Um, Really, it's more of like, I mean, one of the most, not the most, but a very simple tool to get people uh, into a state of consciousness where it feels like it's okay for them, for their awareness to stretch out. So, so trauma kind of, it, it contracts yeah. our energy, right? Cause we're like, we're, we're defending and, and there's these, this is back to IFS. As we start to feel like, okay, the body's like an okay place to be. We want these parts of us to start to stretch out and feel like they can take up space. And so one of the ways you can prompt that is to just say, what are you noticing? (laughs) I mean, it's so easy. It's like, it's too easy, but it's, that is one of the statements I make every single day when I'm at work. (laughs) Because what's interesting is that the neurophysiology of curiosity Mm -hmm. cannot be activated at the same time as fear. Right. And that if you, it's like words are spells. And if you find the Mm -hmm. right spells, it's incredible the type of magic that you can give people. But what are you noticing Mm -hmm. prompts curiosity, Mm -hmm. whereas most people's default is judge what you're noticing. Mm -hmm. Like they don't even notice. It goes straight to judgment. And what's so interesting is if you ask a hundred people, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Even the how Mm -hmm. actually implies judgment and people's answer is either good or bad. There's no feeling of good or bad. Good or bad is a judgment of a felt sense. And this is one of the like, like, oh my God, I'm a fish in water and I've never seen water. Is that our default mode of even saying hi implies that people judge their state and our default response is a judgment of our state as opposed to articulating, what are you noticing? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, depending on where the person's at, I'm asking, you know, well, where does that, what you're noticing, like, where does that reside in your body, right? Because if we're just going to have a conversation about trauma, we're, we, ha- we run the risk of re-traumatizing somebody. Yep. But if you can start to notice how your body holds density, for example, <laughs> that's where the stories live. And your nervous system, your spinal cord, and your gut, the enteric nervous system, are going to tell us a different story than what your ego wants to share. 
So I tell people like, look, if you need a witness, I'm happy to be a witness. But I'm actually more curious about like, what is the narrative that your body is trying to communicate to you? And it's not going to communicate in English. It's going to communicate in sensation. And so can we start to learn the language of that? <laughs> and that's where we begin. And what's beautiful is it feels like beginning there allows for their unconscious intelligence to point you where to go. Mm -hmm. And then essentially your dance from that point on is um, using whatever tools are in your medicine bag to help regulate a mm -hmm. nervous system that either gets too up or too right. down regulated based off of where that felt sense exploration That's takes you. Right. That's right. And then we might develop some anchors, for example. So we work with the pendulation of the nervous system. It's a system, right? So we can go uh, into a state of hyperarousal and then we can go back to hypoarousal. And we can do that with, with big muscular body movements um, or we can do that with our breath or we can do that with um, the eyes. So the orienting response of the eyes, animals in the wild do this as they walk into any new environment. They scan by moving their chin from left to right twice. The occipital lobe of the brain is right next to the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain. So EMDR, this is the basis of EMDR. When we, when we scan for the saber-toothed tiger twice and we realize it's not there, we've just sent a message to the system of like, you're cool, you're good, <laughs> right? So we can work even just with the eyes to help regulating. So pendulating nervous system, we can go into a sensation just by noticing it, not by talking about trauma. We can start to notice like, hey, what's happening in your right pinky toe right now? Um, it's feeling like a holding or a gripping, right? So we can start to explore that. Does it have an age? Does it have a color? What's, what's the imagery associated with that contraction, right? And if the person gets activated, which that's my job, right? You're constantly watching for physiological cues. Right. I'm not, I'm listening to what people are telling me. Yes. I am, but I'm more listening to the subtle body cues, 100%. which is why it's virtually impossible to do therapy in a mask. <laughs> so um, if I notice that there's activation in the system, then we... Do something different. And so an anchor would be like you asking them, when was a time in your life that you felt complete peace or what was a mm -mm. beautiful? Okay. Um, not, we're not going to use the logic for this. We're going to maybe use the five senses. Uh, what's something you can smell in the room right now? What's mm. something? So the anchor is bringing them back into the, to present, the present moment. moment. Okay. Always. Beautiful. Um, what else? Yeah, and people sometimes need containment in a way that is energetic. So I work with a personal altar or a mesa in Love. my consultation room. And that is, and I open sacred space before every single person comes into my energetic field. I'm calling in their helping spirits, their ancestors, my helping spirits. Maybe all just like kind of work together. Uh, and then I'm listening. 
So it's like I'm listening to about five different things. Oh, I'm also listening to what my body and nervous system is saying in response to what they're telling me. So I, over the years, and this was an art that I just, I discerned myself as a practitioner. I love that you use the word art. It's it's an art form of... I'm still listening to this story that your ego really wants to tell me. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still here for that. I'm watching your body and your nervous system and making sure there's still regulation. And then I'm also paying attention to what's, what is happening to my nervous system as you tell me something that is a discrepancy. As you say one thing, but your body says something else, then what, how does my body respond to that? And one of my cues of um, there's a dis- energetic discrepancy is my, my right femoral artery on my leg will start to, to constrict. So I think every practitioner has their Their body-based map, right? And this, again, did not get talked to me in graduate school. So I'm listening to the feedback of my body. That's incredible. Do I feel safe? Do I all of a sudden feel like I'm starting to think about things, right? Or my laundry list of things to do, right? Like that means I, my nervous system just got triggered for some reason. Interesting. and then the the deeper spiritual levels I'm listening because clear audience is one of my my skill sets is like I'm listening to like what are what's what's the guidance being offered here? What's being whispered into my ear? Do I share that? No. Nine times out of ten, that's for me to just kind of frame what's happening here. Every once in a while I'll be prompted, like, say this word. Mm. Right? Uh, but but I mean, uh, and obviously I'm not like, hey, your great grandmother just told me that no, like sure. you need reconciliation. No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> That's for my purposes, right, of holding the space. So there's a lot going on in the room and it's more than just talking. It's two nervous systems. So th- this is well established in the research. You get you get this brain that's dysregulated and it's freaking out and it's having a panic attack. And this brain that's in a regulated state, all we have to do is eye gaze for long enough and this one will start to mirror. That's the mirror neurons. So do I need a ton of psychological interventions and techniques? No, but I need to be doing my work to make sure my nervous system is regulated. Exactly. So if I have a disagreement with my partner and then I come in, <laughs> right, I can't be in service. Right. And the beautiful thing is what you just articulated felt like the idealistic goal of Mm -hmm. the beginning of psychotherapy is that Mm -hmm. they may not have had the words for it, but some of them felt, if I can just be Mm -hmm. whole Mm -hmm. with you, Mm -hmm. you become You start to remember. And the beautiful thing about the research, whenever any type of meta-analysis has ever been done about what type of psychotherapy is more effective. Mm -hmm. What all of them have always shown is there is no technique that is fundamentally more effective than other technique. It is the, I forget how they word it in the clinical research, but it's basically like the rapport that you have. Mm -hmm. But it's because we are so disconnected from like the felt sense of another human Mm -hmm. being, but that it's essentially the wholeness that the therapist has access to right. is nine-tenths of what the dance is if it's actually going to be helpful. More important than what they're going to say. 100%. Mm-hmm. And so this feels like you've given a beautiful map of what the dance will look like. Are there like um, 
graduation rituals or initiation, like, like big things that you will have people go through other than that type of felt experience. Cause my intuition and mm-hmm. you're shaking your head is once you get to the point where you trust their nervous system, it's mm-hmm. almost like the essence of initiation rituals is like, now we're going to take this mm-hmm. into a transformative space mm-hmm. now that we've, so yeah, I'm curious what are, um, some of the other modalities or larger? Uh, You know, it depends on where the person is at, but um, something I've done a lot with people that I work with is the despacho ceremony. Mm. Um, It's a beautiful, powerful way for the, and it depends on what they were working on, what, what has been completed in the work, what they're trying to release, what they're trying to call in, right? There's, there's each despacho is kind of tailored to the individual and what, what. Maybe you could explain to people or I yeah, could. So could. the despacho ceremony is a, it's a practice of sacred reciprocity. It's, um. It's hard for the Western mind to fathom it because we don't have a practice like this. But it, uh, the, the, I guess, metaphor I like to use is like it's creating a care package for the earth um, and offering your intention, your prayers, and all the beautiful gifts that the earth gives us. We're, we're putting our energy into these things as an offering to give back to all of the abundance that we receive from the earth. And there's at least 400 different kinds of despacho ceremonies in Peru. Um, You include different ingredients depending on the intention that you're using. Um, So if we were trying to, let's just say, I don't know, clear clear a limiting belief or clear a traumatic memory, right? If we're trying to release something, then the intention of the despacho will be focused on either one of um, one of the five element systems or the, the four directions actually, or the seven directions. Right. Mm, yeah. I mean, so it, it, I really kind of approach this case by case and what the intention is for people. Um, but and what it feels like to me, and I would love to hear mm-hmm. if this feels like it resonates with you, but that the symbolic function that a despacho ritual intuitively elicits from all humans because we share mm-hmm. the same collective consciousness is it's like, it's an act of giving something away from mm-hmm. you, whether or not that's something that you... Um, are giving as a gift or giving as like a surrendering. Mm -hmm. And then you're giving it to the thing Mm -hmm. that we literally came from, that some part of our collective intelligence knows is the ultimate receiver, is the ultimate space holder, is the ultimate womb, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And that um, because we all share the same like fundamental biology, it triggers something in Mm -hmm. us that like, it's safe for me to give this thing because right. this other thing, the earth right. can hold it. Yes. And that it can be, the offering can be burnt. Yep. It can be simply just like dropped over the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be put into water. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be thrown up in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you would do it with the fifth element, which would be like spirit or ether. Is that where you just kind of like yeah, I mean, speak it out? Yeah, or you can do kind of 
you know, rubbing it around your energetic field, the perimeter of the body. I mean, that can be part of the ritual. And you can bury it. You can it. bury it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and most people, like, they want to burn it. They're like, no, I want rapid transformation. And I'm like, but you know, because the, the medicine really starts to kick in about six months later. It's a longer, slow burn when you, when you bury it. But people want rapid results. So they're it's so funny. It's I, like <laughs> I constantly am telling people that like what I've learned from my Western I want it now mm-hmm. is the type of prayers that I put out um are answered. Mm-hmm. And the way that that's received is catastrophic transformation to my ego in a brutal fashion. And I've gotten to the point now where my default, unless it's an emergency, is whatever the prayer is, and as graceful and as loving and as smooth as that's a way right. as that's, you feel is. You, you always have to preface ooh, that. Because I mean, like, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I had a friend who just six weeks ago, um, her prayer was, uh, I want to, I want to know complete love for all beings. Now, she got in, she got into a severe accident about fourteen days later, mm. and um, has had an incredible healing journey. But it was, and we laughed about it recently, where it was like, remember that thing that I There's always. There's a clause owned? at the end of that yeah, statement. Is as is, peaceful and as beautiful mm-hmm. and as graceful mm-hmm. as is allowed. That's right. Mine is with grace and ease and mercy, please. Ooh, ooh, Graham, can you write that down? Because it rhymes, I love it. With, with grace and ease and mercy, please. Wow. Yeah, because one of the things that I'm connecting to more and more as I go on this path is it's like, once you subjectively know what that consciousness space is, where whatever the thing is, is hearing you and is receiving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Its answer is always yes. Right. And that that mercy part, like, mm, I have learned, and I don't know if I've completely learned it, but I've gone <laughs> through those lessons enough. I, where I've learned the hard way I as love well. the you, mercy part. You really need to be aware of what you're asking for. So I want to respect your time. <laughs> yeah, I don't so even know So I'm going to ask the closing question, okay. but I would love to have you back on because we have a lot that we can talk about at, I could not resonate more with the vision of merging a new paradigm of mental health with regenerative agriculture. That is so spot on to me. That is so spot on. That is so spot on. But the question is, um, let's say that all the visions that you have for a more beautiful world come into existence in your lifetime and you've done your part fully and you know that at the end of this last day, you're going to die peacefully in your sleep. Let's say you're 80 or 90 or 120, depending on what your beliefs are. How do you want to spend that last day? And who would you like to spend it with? Mm. I mean, for sure, out in nature, somehow, barefoot. Um, yeah, no, the whole day would be outside. Um with my family, with my husband, with my daughter and all of our descendants, all of the people that come after her. Um, Is there anything specific ritually that you would like to do on that last day? Well, I mean, I don't know if my husband's up for this task, but uh, (laughs) I mean, I would love a death ritual. I think that would be a beautiful 
offering to the earth, um, you could kind of bury me right as it's time. I mean, I think I don't need a coffin. I don't need any of that. Or right? just put me directly into the earth where I came from. And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper before you go to sleep that night to your children and her children, uh, what would you write? It's all one. It's all the same. There is no separation. Thank you so much for being alive. Thank <laughs> you for doing what you do in the world. And uh, I'm here to support however I can. Thank you so much.